Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Don Tapscott, author of Wikonomics, The Digital Economy, Digital Capital, Growing Up Digital, The Naked Corporation, Radical Openness, and The Blockchain Revolution, most recently with his son, Alex. Don is founder of the Blockchain Research Institute and most recently CarbonX. And in general, Don is well ahead of the game in technology, in global collaboration, and in blockchain. Welcome to the show, Don. Uh, it's great to be here. Really, really good to That's have you on the show. But Don, I'd love to to talk about you a little bit first, because you were one of these people who was well ahead of the game, so far ahead of the game. Wikonomics was written in 2008. The idea of mass collaboration and the crowd working together well before anybody was actually doing anything about it. And, and you're there again with blockchain. But I'd love to talk about you and, and what drives you, what motivates you. Well, I suppose I'm a very curious person, and uh, I'm not a futurist. Fundamentally, I'm a researcher, and I like to get to the bottom of things. Um, And I also uh, give a damn about the world. I think the world is too conflicted, it's too unequal, it's too um, unsustainable, and it's too unjust, and we have a lot of problems. And I... I have become convinced over the years, and I began in the 1970s, actually, at Bell Northern Research, Canada's Bell Labs, doing research on how uh, multi-function workstations connected to networks might change things. And I have become convinced that this technology is the most important thing that's happening in terms of potential for change, mainly good, but also bad. So... um, It's been four decades as of next year, (laughs) unbelievably, that I've been working on this. And um, I I won't be doing another four decades, that's for sure. But uh, there's so much to be done. And there's never been a more interesting or exciting time to be thinking about technology and business and society as we enter into a whole new paradigm. And, and that paradigm, I mean, you, you were always thinking in that new paradigm. And it must, be, must have been frustrating, Don. I mean, you were out there preaching the changes that are required, the changes that are needed, both in big organizations, but also to the public. And a lot of that falls on deaf ears because of vested interest. Well, vested interest in all kinds of things. I mean, my 1981 book, for close to a decade, people said I was wrong. And the main reason was that managers and professionals will never learn to type. Unbelievably, you know, all these profundities about the transformation of the digital age were reduced to the question of keyboard efficiency. You know, I became a typing evangelist. Typing is fun. You can learn to type. Use your own fingers. Secretary's fingers don't count. I mean, so we we have these big cultural uh, legacies as well that are that are tough to change. That book sold about seven thousand copies, which, in hindsight, was a miracle. <laughs> yeah. Even sold that many. <laughs> and and Don, how, how do you? I mean, one of the things before we get get to talk about you, you know your mindset and blockchain, etc., and, and your latest projects, it'd be great to understand how you keep yourself motivated and going despite all the roadblocks you must run into. Well, God, these are tough questions I haven't been asked before. You know, 
sometimes I think that being ahead of things is almost as bad as being wrong. You know, because timing is so critical. I mean, I wrote another book in the mid-80s that nobody read. And then I finally wrote Paradigm Shift. That was like 92, 93. And that was a big book. And then The Digital Economy, 94, 95, was a really big book. Well, they're both big. But then, you know, 96, I wrote a book called Who Knows? Safeguarding Your Privacy in a Networked Age. And uh, I co-authored that with a woman named Ann Kavukian. People just stared at me like, huh? What are you talking about? What's the issue here? So, uh, you know, Digital Capital, you mentioned, that was a fantastic book. Business Week called that book Pure Enlightenment. It was the best review of a, of a book I've ever seen in Business Week. But the, the book came out a month before NASDAQ crashed. So uh, <laughs> timing is uh, such a key issue. And sometimes it is frustrating when you think you're right about something and the world is just not ready to uh, embrace that. I thought we might have been early. Alex and I with blockchain revolution, but it turns out that the timing was pretty great on that one. Yeah, and you, and you deserve that. I mean, reading as I have so many of your books, and even Wikonomics was one of the first I came across, and there was so much in there that actually helped me in my own role because it gave me a new lens to look at things. Some of the ingredients you talked about, the ingredients of collaboration, openness on both sides, peering, sharing information, and open markets people just struggle with those ideas because it's like, well, that's going right in the face of how we make money today. And now along comes the crash in 2008 and along comes blockchain and, and there's this mass disruption en route. And I'd loved on your words on what blockchain is and what it's going to enable in the world. Well, that's the thing. I mean, these ideas were sort of waiting for a technology that could enable this kind of transformation to occur. I mean, even the ideas of mass collaboration and Wikonomics, for sure, that brought about some big changes, not just with Wikipedia, but, you know, we've now got pharmaceuticals placing clinical trial data in a commons, and there are fundamental changes taking place in every institution. Education, we're inexorably moving towards a new model of pedagogy, where students, rather than being passive recipients of somebody else's knowledge, sort of co-create and co-innovate, not just knowledge. What you know when you graduate isn't that important. It's sort of your capacity, really, to think critically and solve problems and research and collaborate and see the big picture and so on. But uh, now, you know, we are moving towards new models of pedagogy. But again, I mean, Wikonomics was a big book. It was the best-selling management book in the world for the whole year, according to Amazon. Was competing with the black swan. But again, in terms of fighting against old paradigms, I sat with Nicholas, um, uh, uh, the uh, black swan author, at the FT Goldman Sachs Best Business Book of the Year Gala. So we're all sitting there in our black ties, and the CEO of Goldman Sachs is there and everything. And he was saying, you got this hands down. And I was saying, nah, black swan's going to win. And... Uh, <laughs> They gave it to an unknown book about investment banking. So it was like an out-of-body experience. It was one of us should have won. Because those were two really important books. So uh, anyway, it is what it is. You just keep <laughs> working away and eventually things do come around. It's kind of ironic that it is, you know, investing in banking that got in your way because 
now you're ahead of the game and right on time, actually, it seems, with blockchain and the banks and the middlemen are the ones in threat now and they're the ones that who will be coming to you for help. Well, the irony um, was pretty extraordinary of a book on investment banking in early 2008, winning the award over the black swan and over Wikonomics. And then six months later, the core modus operandi of these institutions almost brought down a global capitalist system. I'm sure Nassim was, uh, from the black swan was, was shaking his head as well. Yeah, frustrating times. But Don, it'd be great to hear from your mouth that, you know, what blockchain is going to enable in the world, what, what we're going to see over the next, I don't know, hopefully sooner, but, you know, over the next decade. Well, for these 40 years, we've had the Internet of Information. And it's been great, but it is limited. You know, its impact overall is not profound. I mean, the deep structure and architecture of the corporation is still the same. We have changes in some industries, retail being an example of one that's been turned on its head. But overall, things pretty much work the way that they have. But the thing about information is that when I send you a copy, a PDF, a PowerPoint, even with a website, I keep the original. We've had this printing press, really. And that's been great. You know, it's democratized information. But when it comes to value, you know, assets, things that really matter to the economy, stocks, money, bonds, uh, intellectual property, carbon credits, our identities, things like um, votes or cultural value like art or music. Sending a copy of those is a terrible idea. You don't want someone copying your vote or your identity. And if I send you $1,000, it's really important that I don't still have the money. Now, cryptographers have called this the double spend problem for a long time. And the way we manage that in our economy is through intermediaries, as you um, were saying. And banks, credit card companies, governments, uh, now big social media companies. And they provide all of the business and transaction logic for every type of commerce. They identify the asset. Yep, that's really a dollar. Uh, they clear and settle transactions. They manage a situation, an election. And, and they keep records. Now, overall, they've done a pretty good job, but there are growing problems with these intermediaries. I mean, governments are at an all-time low on the trust scale. We have a crisis of legitimacy of our democratic institutions. We have, you know, as I said, the, the banks almost brought down capitalism through their core modus operandi. And there are other problems. I mean, the financial industry excludes 2 billion people from the global economy. They add a lot of costs that shouldn't be there now. They slow things down. And the biggest problem is all these intermediaries are capturing our data. This is the new oil. We create this data and they capture it. So the benefits of the digital age have been asymmetrical. And we have this crazy, unprecedented, at least in modern history, situation where we have wealth creation but declining prosperity. The economy is growing, the middle class is shrinking. So enter blockchain. Now, thank you to an anonymous person, Satoshi Nakamoto. He solved the double spend problem. So we now have a global ledger, an internet of value, a vast ledger where anything of value, ultimately from money to stocks to music to votes, can be managed, stored, transacted in a secure and private way. 
So this is a very revolutionary thing. I think the Internet of Value is going to be bigger than the Internet of Information. And it does challenge incumbents very fundamentally. It doesn't mean that intermediaries will go away, although disintermediation is absolutely a factor. You know, you think about you tap your card in Starbucks and a bunch of messages go through half a dozen companies, each with their own, you know, counterparty risk, each at cost, each delaying things. Three days later, a payment, you know, a clearing and settlement and a payment occurs. Well, if that were on a ledger, a distributed ledger, there would be no three-day settlement period because payment and settlement be the same activity. And you wouldn't need all those counterparties either. So there is disintermediation and big disruption. But on the other hand, there are opportunities to re-intermediate, to create new value in the middle. And, And it may turn out these are bigger than the old middle. But the problem of paradigms that I pointed out back, you know, geez, almost well over, well, 25 years ago now, is that leaders of old paradigms have difficulty embracing the new. So it's going to be very interesting to see who steps up and who doesn't. And do you see, Don, the incumbents embracing blockchain? I mean, if they become the front end of blockchain, for example, you know, the blockchain running the back ends, or do you see them being totally replaced? Well, both. Um, I mean, JP Morgan is a great uh, case in point. I don't think there's anyone investing more in blockchain innovation than they do. But then you got the CEO, Jamie Morgan, saying Bitcoin is a fraud. Well, Bitcoin is a lot of things, but it's not a fraud. You know, Shakespeare, he does protest too much. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, and the idea of a cryptocurrency that's not controlled by a state or by a bank, because he's issue their own currencies and probably will in the future, are already doing so. That's a bit of a frightening concept. So, um, on the other hand, it's a reality. It's a new asset class. Bitcoin's worth over $100 million or billion dollars. So, you know, JP Morgan is into the Bitcoin trading business as well. So this is, in psychological terms, called cognitive dissonance. You know, <laughs> you, you have these conflicting things that are happening in your head. But, you know, Clay Christensen was right about the innovator's dilemma. If you don't actually find a way to cannibalize your own revenue, then somebody else does. Isn't that the biggest challenge, though, Don? Like, you've been doing this for four decades, telling people there's another way, there's a new curve you need to look at. But how do you convince them? It seems like there's often needs to be a burning platform. Like we have PSD2 over here. There's a thing called GDPR over here that's actually going to you know, revolutionize privacy and data. And now you have blockchain coming down the line. And people are forced to make the change rather than change their own paradigm. Yeah. Well, isn't it so? This was 1992. I wrote that a parad- paradigm is a mental model. And they put boundaries around what we think. They constrain our actions. They're often based on assumptions that are so strong we don't know that they're there. And leaders of old paradigms have great difficulty embracing the new. And so this is really the big challenge of leadership in our time. And I'll tell you just an interesting observation. I don't know if I have a copy of it here. I'll go to my library. But I was asked to write the uh, 20th anniversary edition of the digital economy. So I had to read the book again and see kind of what had occurred. And the book held up really well. 
the biggest shocker to me was that the book was very positive, but there was a dark side sort of section, all the things that could go wrong. And, um, you know, we could have destruction of our privacy. We could have a fragmentation, social discourse, rather than the stuff bringing it together. We could have, you know, growing, um, well, I called it, quote, severe bipolarization of wealth. Now, we could have, you know, all, all kinds of, you know, things like that. And every one of them, all seven of them that I outlined uh, in the book, actually uh, did occur. So, and then, <laughs> as an aside, I was looking at the book and I noticed all of the um, sort of the endorsements that had been given for the original uh, book, The Digital Economy. And half of the companies, there were like 20 of them, half of them are gone. Yeah. That says unbelievable. unbelievable. Absolutely, absolutely unbelievable. And I'm now, sure. They didn't all go bankrupt, but they, you know, they um, had various various stages of um, getting themselves into trouble or they were acquired by somebody or merged and so on. So anyway, it was sort of a sobering thing. It is. And, and the fact that you called out those seven points and, you know, most likely those leaders of those companies didn't listen or they didn't shift their own paradigm or, like you say, like in the innovator's dilemma, look to what the next disruption is and actually cannibalize themselves or at least run them concurrently. Mm-hmm. But but Don, yeah. you know, flip, flip into the bright side of the force of what blockchain can do, because you touched on this about the huge portion of humanity who doesn't ac- have access to banks and therefore are working in the dark ages, essentially, and how blockchain can revolutionize their world. Well, this is a big problem. We have two billion people who are not part of the global economy. And uh, in fairness to the banks, it's not just that they can't make money off these people. Most of them don't have an identity. Weirdly, a lot of them have a supercomputer in their pocket. And you can deliver financial services to them instantly with blockchain. It's fighting against old paradigms, you know, in Kenya, against M-Pesa. But uh, these are very powerful tools. Hernando de Soto, the Latin American economist, says that 70% of people who own land in the developing world have an unenforceable title. And he says this is more important than being banked because if you can't have a valid title to your land, you can't borrow against it, you can't plan for the future and so on. Well, you put land titles on a blockchain and no local clerk can be bribed uh, to change that. You know, there are all kinds of other really big um, sort of social issues like this having to do with, with poverty and inclusion that blockchain can be a very powerful tool. This was the theme of my new TED Talk about blockchain and prosperity. And uh, I haven't looked at that recently, but the last time I checked, there's two and a half million people had seen that thing. Yeah, no, seen, it, seen it's fantastic. Yeah. So um, anyway, these are big opportunities. And you talked about also about the likes of Image and Heap, who I know is, is driving the music industry and you know, that's, I know that's more a first world uh, issue, but, you know, peop, artists getting paid for the work or even publications paying by the page or paying by the article, this can all be enabled by blockchain. Well, yeah, when she posts a song on a blockchain platform, the song is inside a smart contract and it protects her intellectual property rights. 
you know, you want to listen to it, maybe it's a few microsims, or maybe it's free. You want to put it in your movie, that's different. And the, the song specifies the right. It's like, what do you want to do? You make a theme song, you have somebody sing, you want background music, or it's going to be a ringtone on somebody's phone. I mean, and the, w- the way she describes it is the song acts as a business, sort of collecting money, protecting my rights, because the song has a lawyer and a bank account inside the song. So that's just one example of how there are all kinds of people who create value in our economy, but that aren't fairly compensated. And the Internet of Information actually not only didn't help with this, it broke a lot of our IP regime. So we didn't have a a native digital medium for value. That's what a song is. It's an asset owned by somebody. So we all we had was a, a medium for for information. So we treated the song like it was information, and we copied it and published it. Well, the upshot of that is, if you were a, a songwriter thirty five years ago, you wrote a platinum song, sold a million copies, you get forty six thousand dollars in royalties. Today, a, a, sorry, a million copies. Uh, today, you get a million streams, and you don't get forty six thousand dollars. You get $35. So we can fix this now if we're smart, if we use this technology effectively. And talking about smarts, Don, governments. So governments seem to be so far away from this. And, and it's like AI, for example, that there's a whole AI revolution going on as well. And there's no government taking this by the scruff of the neck and actually controlling it or regulating it. What's your feeling on blockchain and governments? Well, Governments, of course, can be huge beneficiaries in a number of ways. Uh, this technology can bring about some profound changes in the architecture of government. I think it can open up governments, enabling a new division of labor in society about how we create public value. We wrote about that in uh, Blockchain Revolution. It can help us solve the crisis of legitimacy of democracy. Young people aren't voting more and more agree with the bumper sticker, don't vote, it only encourages them. Uh, which is a problem. Politicians are beholden to the, their wealthy funders, not to the electorate. Well, we can now have smart votes, votes that have smart contracts associated with them where politicians need to be beholden to the people who elected them. Um, governments can also benefit in terms of central banks. You know, Alex, uh, just yesterday, was speaking at a huge conference in the Mideast of uh, the central bankers and ministers of finance from a, a whole bunch of com- uh, countries in, in sort of that region and in Asia. And, um, yeah, I was just talking to him. He said the reaction was pretty extraordinary, this excitement about creating a, a cryptocurrency for your nation state, moving your, you know, mo- moving the euro or moving the dollar or the pound to, uh, to a blockchain. The benefits of that could be huge. But again, leaders of old paradigms have difficulty embracing the new. So governments are, they don't understand this stuff. There's still lots of people who think that this is, this is all about, well, <laughs> criminals. Of course, criminals always use every new technology before anybody else. They're the most effective. Absolutely. The, flip, the car, the flip phone, <laughs> you name it. Yeah. But, uh, and, of course, some smart law enforcement agencies understand that this is a real boon to them because they can use metadata to track criminal activity. 
But then, you know, like China, I did an interview recently with a, a big uh, business magazine there. And they said, well, our government says we need to protect our fiat currency. Well, no, you don't. I don't, I don't. I'd be shocked that Bitcoin was more than 1% of all transactions in China ever. You know, the, they should be doing the opposite, abrasive technology and build a fiat currency on a blockchain. So leaders of old had difficulties embracing the new. Korea is struggling with, should we ban ICOs? Well, the answer is no. You know, you're a surgeon. Get out your scalpel. Don't use a chainsaw in the operating room because <laughs> a lot of crap's going to fly around. And you're going to injure a lot of people. You know, if it's a security and some tokens are, then it should fall under securities legislation. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, and you should treat it like a duck. But if, it's, if it looks like a dolphin, you know, or a small motor vehicle, don't treat it like a duck. It's just, it takes time, you know, for people to understand the power of what's uh, happening here and the opportunity. It reestablishes trust, doesn't it? It's it's where trust is missing, and there was a need for an intermediary. Now we have an impartial intermediary, which is technology. Well, that's true. Trust is not achieved by a middleman. It's achieved by cryptography and by collaboration and by some clever code. But it it doesn't. But but intermediaries can use this to build more trusted institutions. That's the irony of governments. Know, being resistant to this technology. And Don, last question is, is your current work with the Blockchain Research Institute. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, there are lots of organizations, every company, you know, smart company that's big, is experimenting. They're doing pilots. They're members of important consortia like Hyperledger, the Enterprise Ethereum Foundation, or R3. But no one has really tackled the big strategic issues about this technology? How does it change industries? How does it change the way we manage companies, the functions of the C-suite, CMO, CFO, CIO, chief legal officer, head of supply chain, and so on? And then there are all kinds of really big, tough issues, the Internet of Things, tokenization, smart contracts, uh, you name it. So over the years, I've conducted a number of these large I call them syndicated research projects. You get 20 to 40 companies, they kick in a couple hundred thousand dollars. You have millions of dollars. You can hire on a contract basis all the smartest people to look into stuff. So our project on tokenization is being led by Michael Casey, who wrote the book, co-authored The Age of Cryptocurrencies. Our project on smart contracts is led by Nick Zabo, who invented the idea in 1996. His paper, we just released it yesterday to our members, is the mo most important document ever written about smart contracts. That's my opinion. Yeah. So all these members are, um, are getting millions of dollars worth of IP. And the cool thing about this, for people who don't have 200K, uh, or 150 if you're a non-tech and non-financial company, is that each of these um, projects, six months after they've been issued to our members, will be released to the public on a Creative Commons license. Wow. So in six months minus one day, that uh, from today, Nick Zabel's paper will be made public. And that's going to be a really big deal. And 
this will, you know, this will be the rising tide that lifts all boats. I think it's going to help bring a lot of clarity to the market and break a lot of uh, log jams. But if anybody's listening in their company, they're from a big company or or a blockchain pioneer, uh, they should contact us on info at blockchainresearchinstitute.org or tweet me at dtapscott. And um, we can uh, give you some information about how to get involved. Phenomenal, Don. Phenomenal. And thank you so much for your time. And your uh, credit to yourself, you, you know, you live your values, what you write, you live. And we wish you the very, very best. Don Tapscott, founder of Blockchain Research Institute, author of a plethora of books, which I'll list on this interview, and most recently, CarbonX. Thanks for joining us, Don. Okay. My pleasure, Aidan.